0: Bible and turn with me please to the book of Romans. I'm glad that some of you are alert enough as you're reading the worship guide to know where the passage of scripture is found. I was asked this morning uh, by someone in our home group, I won't mention Betsy's name, but uh, she wanted to know if uh, I was going to be preaching the same message that Tim preached the other other week as he was preaching chapter 1 verses 1 through 7. And so I told her during home group this week that we would be doing a test to see which was better, no, which one was right, I mean, uh, which one was, or what the difference was, something like that, yeah. No. Um, today's message, um, as we were talking about worship in our seminar the other weekend, we were talking about different types of messages. Today's message may be considered somewhat of a topical message, uh, as we'll be considering the doctrine of Christ as found in chapter 1 of Romans Uh, and while Tim provided uh, the last time we were studying a couple of weeks ago an excellent introduction to the book of Romans considering both historical significance and uh, also how the characteristics of a healthy church can be found in these verses I look forward to focusing on uh, the importance of the person of Christ a point of interest that Tim made during his message by the way Hopefully this will not reduce Christ to simply his one church son. as I passed by this week noted that Jesus is God's valentine to the world. We hope that we can exalt him just a little higher than that uh, today as we study the word of God. But you may ask, um, why is it important for us to do this? Well, hopefully as we uh, consider these seven verses again, it will help us and prepare us to understand who Christ is in light of the whole letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Follow along, if you will, from Romans chapter 1. I begin in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you are also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon your word today. We thank you that you have freely given it. We thank you, Lord, that you have also given us your spirit to teach us. that, Lord, as we have been reminded, as we read from 1 Corinthians today, that, that you've chosen things that sometimes don't even exist to make that which does humble. Make them weak. You Show the inadequacies of them. And today, during this time of the sermon, Lord, it is no different. There's nothing that I have in and of myself that I can offer your people. There's no wisdom that I can share. There are no truths that I can conceive of. There's nothing that I can say or a way that I can say it that would make a difference in their life. And thank you, Lord, that you have not left me alone, that you have given me your word, your spirit, And we thank you, Lord, that you have also prepared our hearts. I pray, Lord, that eyes would be open today. I pray that ears would be open so that we may understand your word clearly, that we would believe even to the point of obedience as we make much of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So why is it important for us to understand the person of Christ? Well, there's a few reasons, and on your sheet, then, uh, one thing, I was kind of joking with Richard the other week when we were doing the seminar that I really don't like to give handouts because then I'm in a box. I, I'm pretty much responsible to stay within that box, and you pretty much have an idea of how long it's going to be before we're finally finished, and, uh, you know, then I have, you know, so limited. But I want to let you know that I've got more than you've got, uh, just so that you, in case any of you are concerned, I've got more information up here. And hopefully it will be consistent with what you have, and hopefully with what you have, you will be able to follow along and it would be helpful for you. But there's a reason why we want to understand the person of Christ, and one of the main reasons is there are threats to the gospel. There are false religions, there are false teachings and heresies abounding. There are antichrists that are threatening the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Tim mentioned in his message uh, the other week, we should be jealous that God, or Jesus alone, gets the credit for our salvation. That he alone is the cure for sin as he paid the wages of sin, as if it were his, and by his resurrection, death is defeated. That's the gospel. And that is something that we should be jealous over. That is something that we should be ready to defend. That is something that we should be ready to live out and to uh, pronounce to the world that we live in. But there have been many false religions over the course of history. Including a host of the ones that we find in the Old Testament. Any worship of a God that does not equate Jesus with the one true God is a false religion. Whether it's a religion like Hinduism that has absolutely nothing, no common traits whatsoever with Christianity, or whether it be Islam, which would say it shares certain uh, traditions or maybe certain individuals, but yet the founder was never a Christian or a Jew, either way, or anything in between, these are false religions. They are enemies of Christ, they are enemies of the gospel. And as Jesus said, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. So if Jesus is not incorporated into the religion, if he's not understood to being God, then it is false. For Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. You are either with Christ or you're not. But it's not just simply false religions that abound, there is also false teachers. False teachers can be a threat from within the church as we see even in the New Testament, but particularly throughout church history. But even parachurch organizations, and what I mean by parachurch I know that's a phrase from my training days and that might not be a word we use anymore, but that just simply means an umbrella group that sort of, it isn't a local church but it is an umbrella of a group of churches. In some cases, it, it could be very ecumenical. In other words, it can include a number of different types of denominations, or it could be a group of people that have basically the same ideas, but it's not the church. And sometimes these ch- types of organizations, with that uh, they could have social agendas or political agendas, they can also foster an environment that replaces the gospel minister- ministry with man centered programs. This oftentimes leads to Heresies, and that might not be a word we use a whole lot. If you lived 500 years ago, you certainly wouldn't want to have heard that word because it usually would have been talked about people like us. <laughs> uh, heretics uh, are people who uh, teach things contrary to orthodox doctrine. There are some examples, and they always have some really catchy names to them, and so it's kind of let me just kind of go through some. Uh, there, there's a heresy of subordinationism. Which basically says Christ and the Holy Spirit are subordinate to the Father. So in other words, they wouldn't deny the Trinity. They would just say that the Father and the, and was over the Son and the Holy Spirit. there were different degrees. And you say, well, really people believe? Well, a recent LifeWay study found that 22% of people who consider themselves evangelical believe that. There's also Arianism, which may be something you've heard of, which basically presents the idea that Christ was created by God. You know a Jehovah's Witness? They would be an example of an Arian who believes that Christ existed, but he was created by God. There's Docetism, which means Christ's body was not human. And while we would probably have a hard time believing that Christian science was ever Christian or science, either one, uh, they would promote that Jesus Christ's body, it, it was not even human. There, and while actions during the Middle Ages and even during the Reformation period, uh, the, the actions taken against heretics were quite harsh and extreme. The Bible makes it really clear that we are to be just as diligent to guard against, as Paul would call it in Acts chapter 28, or chapter 20, verses 28, that we should be diligent against fierce wolves will come upon you for among your own, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples which Christ obtained with his own blood. That's the world in which we live. We can't assume that because someone calls themselves a church, Because people call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. That they're not twisting the words of Christ. That they're not twisting the ideas that we have from Scripture. That they're not substituting it with other things in which it would be heretical. In the New Testament we often find examples of the heresy of Gnosticism. Not that Gnosticism was ever Christian, but those who were Gnostics before they became believers will allow their Gnosticism to come, bring, come back into their philosophy of life, and they would try to address Christian matters in a Gnostic sort of way. Most of which would deny the, 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 the coming of Christ of God in the flesh. Then there's also Antichrists unless you're afraid that I'm going to pull the chart out and show you when the Antichrist is going to come or how long he's going to be here and what he's going to do. Uh, That'll be the next seminar, by the way. Um, What we're talking about here is the term that's used in the New Testament, Antichrist, which literally means against Christ. Numerous were identified during the first century. There have been various attempts since then, in recent years even, to discredit and to denounce the person of Jesus Christ. So-called scientists have tried to expose the lack of evidence to support that there was ever a person named Jesus on the earth. There are others, and it's quite fascinating, uh, but there are others who would simply say that the church, and particularly Western Europe, created this person Jesus, and that if you believe in Jesus, it is nothing more than a mental psychosis. That you've been led to believe a falsehood. That you've just been led by people who want to control your mind. That Jesus is real. That's an antichrist. The apostle John makes it clear that the spirit of antichrist was present in his day. Jesus spoke of false Christ as well. And it's alive and well today. And if our understanding of Christ is at best lacking or at worst, missing, our faith is futile. John writes in his second letter in verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. So today we're going to consider the doctrine of Christ, or as it would be called, Christology for the Romans and for the rest of us, but we're going to hopefully see why it is so important for us to understand who Christ is as we go further into this study of the book of Romans. The first thing, that we, if, uh, we do not have an exhaustive Christology in Romans, there are other things throughout the New Testament that we learn about Christ, even things that when we go back and look in the Old Testament we can learn about Christ, but we certainly have a significant picture of him here, even in this short passage that we read together today. Uh, and we see his divine sonship, we see his name and title, we see his lordship, we see his resurrection, we see his power, we see his human life, and we see his divine nature. All right here in those first seven verses that we read. And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these things because these are going to be significant points of Christ's nature that we need to understand as we go through the rest of this study in Romans. And so we're going to look, beginning with the last couple that I mentioned, his human life and divine nature to begin with. Look at verse 3, if you will, again. It says, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And then verse 4, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 3, Paul says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, he was descended. From, or he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, which means that Jesus Christ, of whom Paul is speaking of, was human. He was human because he was born of other humans, mainly Mary. He was declared, and he was done so according to the flesh, so he descended. Now, he was also declared to be the Son of God with or in the power of. The spirit of holiness through the, by, or by the resurrection from the dead. So we see that Paul is not just simply claiming that Jesus Christ was human because he was a descendant of David, but he's also the Son of God because of what was demonstrated through his resurrection by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is making absolutely no bones about the fact that Jesus Christ was both God and man. We need to understand that very clearly, and I believe all of us do as members and attendees of uh, Cornerstone Baptist Church. That's something that we understand. We often may even take that for granted. But let's look at the details for a second. First, Paul distinguishes between the natures, flesh, and spirit. They are both preceded by the words according to. And so the issue is clear. He has two natures. The second thing we need to ask ourselves is how does Christ possess them? First, again, it says he was born of the seed of David, whereas the ESV reads, descended from. Either way, Christ becomes flesh through the process of birth, as we all do, except for Adam and Eve, of course. However, in verse 4, Paul says that he was declared to be the Son of God. Now, the word declared there is a word that literally is the word "horizo" in the Greek. And if you played around enough, even if you've never taken a Greek course in your life, you could say, well, that sounds a whole lot like horizon. If you couldn't figure that out, I just told you. That's basically what it is. The idea of horizon. Now, what does the horizon do? It makes a distinction between two things, right? When you look at the horizon, you're looking at where the land stops and the sky starts. Now, the land doesn't end there. The sky doesn't start there. But as far as you can perceive it and see it, the horizon is what gives you a distinction between the two, right? And so when he was declared to be the Son of God, that is a distinction that Jesus as a human being has among all other human beings. So that when he's declared to be the Son of God, it's not that, well, he was born and became a person, but he was also sort of God-like. But this person who primarily, Mary and Joseph, who were there, when he was born, and those who saw him, as Pastor Charlie is leading us through the book of Luke, as we see him develop and grow in stature among men, and we see him even to the point as a young 30-ish year old person down a cross, there was a distinction made between him, there was a horizon between Jesus and everyone else. He was declared to be the son of God. The Son of God being a title that is eternal in nature, not one that has a beginning or an end, if we study our Old Testament. And so there's a contrast between his human nature and his divine nature, but it did not contradict each other. This is the wonder of the incarnation. As much as we get really uh, emotional about Christmas when it comes to giving gifts, and we think about the season of peace and goodwill towards men, and and we think about all the wonderful touchy-feely things that go along with the Christmas season, even if it's just at the end of the year and you get maybe a week off, the most incredible thing about the Christmas season is the fact that God became man, right? My favorite Christmas carols are songs that speak of Christ becoming man. The significance of this. Now Paul says that Jesus is the Son of God, eternal, always existing, equal with God according to the Spirit. And that is the Holy Spirit, by the way. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead made possible by, by the Holy Spirit's power was an opportunity, as Wayne Gruden says in his his, uh, systematic theology, was a way for the brilliant glory of God, which was hidden from view in Christ's flesh. The resurrection gave that hidden part of Christ an opportunity to be brilliant. He was glorified. Even while he emptied himself, as Paul puts it in first, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter two, emptied himself, not of his deity, but some of his divine privileges and some of his prerogatives as God, uh, by making the form or being taken in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in other words, while Jesus continued remaining what he was, that is fully divine. He also became what he previously had not been. That is, fully human as well. You say, well, preacher, I don't understand that. (laughs) You're in good company. I can't figure that out. But I don't have to. Because God said that's what happened. That's what is the truth. That is what the Word of God tells us. And that is what we place our faith in. You say, well, that's going to be hard to, to prove to the scientists. Well, absolutely. There's a lot of things that are going to be hard to prove to the scientists because they have a hard, unregenerate heart in many cases. There are some good Christian scientists out there. Don't Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But to the one who is relying simply upon experimentation, observation of things, this is not going to be something that they're going to understand or believe. But the word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And this capable will take my hard heart, and as God gives me a new heart of flesh, I'm able to understand. can't explain it, but I believe it. And this is really important for us to understand about Christ. Christ and who he is and what we believe about him falls apart if we don't understand that he is both God and man. And we'll continue talking about that in a minute and what appears to us as members, again, of Cornerstone Baptist Church or anyone who would adhere to what we believe it's clear and easy to understand here in the 21st century to understand that the first few centuries of the church they began to struggle with this. Arianism which is the most notable movement that rejected the deeds of Christ during the 3rd century was prominent. During periods of church history, you understand that there were often councils that were commissioned to sort of settle disputes. Now, we have to understand that these people didn't come together and say, okay, now this is what we're going to believe. They just simply said, what does the word of God say? And coming at it from, from their different perspectives to come and understand and help us even today. And thankfully, God used some really great men of God to do so for us. And probably during by the middle of the fifth century, this whole idea of God being bo- or Jesus Christ being both God and man was somewhat solidified. Now again, there were pockets of Christianity didn't have a problem with this at all. But there were those who did, and they were creating problems. And so it was something that as the church continued to grow and expand throughout the world, it was something that you need to be consistent with. We need to get this thing under control. And so at least by the middle of the 5th century, there was a statement made after a uh, council at uh, Chalcedon that I want you just, I, I regret that I did not put this up so you could read it, but again, if you read it, you might be half asleep by the time you get halfway through it. Uh, but I'm going to read it so you'll be sure to go asleep by halfway through it. But I want you to notice, for those of you who remain awake, to listen to some of the language that they used. It says, we, we then following the Holy Fathers all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial or co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, which I took out of my reading even though I'm sharing it with you now. They, they included Mother of God, which we, you know, we have certainly removed that part. According to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly. I can't remember the last time I used the word inconfusably, but we know what that means, right? Without confusion, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of nature's being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. All that to say, Jesus is indeed God and man, according to the scriptures. So let us spend the rest of our time considering the value of that as well as some other things by asking a few questions which oftentimes, when we think about uh, any sort of theology whether it be Christology or anything else asking questions as far as why is it important. Well first of all why, let's ask the question why is it important that Jesus is God? Well as you have on your sheet there it says "As perfect, righteous, and eternal. His death had infinite value whereby he could die for the entire world. A person who was born and limited in his existence couldn't take care of everybody for all time, forever. But we rejoice in what Peter writes in first Peter chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty-one, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, or we could even put in there temporal things that don't last or haven't always been, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, because he was perfect, he was God, he was all righteous, he was holy, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Notice it didn't, he was noticed when he was born to Mary. No, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God who is Christ. And so even though we have a great uh, pointing to the relationship between the Father and the Son, let's not also forget the relationship with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune God. This was something that, that, uh, as we were talking about how our message is going to go forward, that when we look even in this passage in Romans chapter 1, we see the Trinity clearly presented because it's the Holy Spirit's power that brought Christ from the dead and has as it were uh, co- has, uh confirmed what God was doing through his life but that wasn't the only time that the Holy Spirit was involved in Christ's life in Luke chapter 1 we, we know that Christ was conceived by means of the Holy Spirit Luke chapter 4 verse 1 he was Filled with the Holy Spirit. And then as we see in verse 4, he was raised by the Holy Spirit. So the relationship and the connection with Jesus Christ as a part of a triune God, not subordinate to the Father, but equal, is very clear in Scripture. Now why is it important that Jesus is man? Now we won't spend a whole lot of time over this because we're Lord willing, we're going to take some time a lot of time going through this in Romans. But just to give you an idea, why is it important that Jesus is man? Because, well, I can understand that Jesus needed to be divine so that he could forgive, because who can forgive sin but God, right? That, that, that's something that Jesus even admitted. So we understand that it's important for him to be divine. But why did he need to be man? Well, number one, Paul mentions in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, which I want to turn over there just to read, even because it's probably going to be about six years before we get to chapter 5. Uh, verse 18 and 19 so then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as, though, through, as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. God could not be obedient. I mean, he's perfectly righteous. But he, his obedience... Just simply being divine in nature can't be imparted to us. But Jesus Christ, who became man, his obedience could because he was living life as was required of a man to live. Didn't, not coming to destroy the law, but coming to fulfill the law. So that he could, on our behalf, present us righteous before God. it's also for a, a matter of propitiation. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 talk more about his ability to be a satisfactory substitute, but again, in Romans chapter 3, we're going to see that again, in which Jesus Christ satisfied God's requirement for wrath. But he could only do that as if he was a human being presenting himself in a world of sin, but yet being sinless and dying for that sin, paying the price for that sin as it was imputed to him from us by God. And then also, as we are very familiar with the book of Hebrews, it's also important that he could sympathize as a man. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Again, we're going to see the connection there as why is it important for him to do so. But that's who Jesus Christ is. He can sympathize with us. He can relate to us. He can be obedient on our behalf. He can satisfy God's holy wrath taking upon the punishment on the cross. leads us to another point of Jesus Christ being a resurrected Savior why is it so important that Jesus arose from the grave well in chapter 6 verse 4 we read from Paul therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life it's the basis of our new walk as a Christian as a believer because the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that gives us life to live righteously before God. It also gives us the hope of eternal life. Chapter 7, verse 4 in Romans, it says that it is the basis for being able to bear fruit because of his resurrection. He is also able to make intercession for us because of his resurrection. In chapter 8, verse 34, and then he, again, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and what? Believe that God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. It's the basis of our salvation. So that's the reason why it is important in a very small sense, not in subject matter, but in just what we're covering, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And then why is it so important that Jesus is Lord? His name and title. Not making a big point about this, but just for your information. Uh, as you have there on your sheet. Uh, I think it's important to note that when the Old Testament was translated into the common language of Jesus' day, into Greek language, that is what we call the Septuagint. The the word that was used in the Greek to translate the word uh, Jehovah from the Old Testament is the same word that's used for Lord. Uh, Now, it's a common word in the New Testament, and it's used for multiple purposes as Lord, but when we look at the way it was used to describe Jehovah from the Old Testament, it's the same word. I think that's significant when we think about Jesus Christ being Lord. That it's a, it's a connection with him being Jehovah as we know he is from the Old Testament. But not just that, but the fact that as Paul puts it back in Romans chapter 1. Well, actually, I'm going back to Romans chapter 1. You're probably still there. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, A bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now again, among whom, verse 6, you are also called of Jesus Christ. To those who are beloved of God in Rome, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it important that Jesus Christ has a name and a title of Lord? Well, as Paul will go on to say in chapter 12, verse 11, we are to serve the Lord. And as we just looked at, Paul recognized his position as a servant underneath the servanthood of the Lord. Now this title would have made the Roman government twitch just a little bit because they didn't like anybody referring to being someone referred to as Lord other than the emperor. But nonetheless... It is the true and correct title for Jesus Christ. Now, what took me a couple of years in systematic theology to go through in Christology and uh, for books that you would read that take you longer than that, we've quickly, and see, it's only because I gave you a handout. We'd still be like on point two if if you didn't have the handout because you wouldn't know where I was going. But this is just a summation. Of what we find in Romans chapter 1 regarding the person of Jesus Christ. And you still may be asking, what difference does it make? I mean, why why should I care? What practical use does this doctrine of Jesus Christ have for me today? Because you don't understand, preacher, I, I've, I've got family issues that I'm dealing with. I've got issues that, uh, that I can't get people in my family to get along or, or they're this or they're doing that and, and they just don't love you and they don't want to go to church. Or, or You've got family issues that you're trying to... You, maybe you had some family issues on the way to church because they were in your back seat and they wouldn't behave as you were trying to get to church. Or maybe you're worrying about the family issues you're going to be facing when you get home from church today. Or maybe you're thinking about work and the pressures you're facing or the culture or the environment in which you're having to work under is just not conducive to a righteous life. Perhaps you're just feeling empty on the inside. Maybe, maybe you're wor- worrying about your yearbook photo. And I use that figuratively. But maybe there's things in your past that you, know, you just can't run from far enough. And as soon as you feel like you're on the mountaintop, the enemy will say, hey, don't you remember? Don't you remember who you really are? Don't you remember all those other people who know you, who you are? And you may feel like it's, a, it's just impossible. But if we believe that Jesus is who this text presents him to be, then he will provide you all the hope that you need. He will give you the obedience of faith. He is the sovereign over your life and all things. He is the master of your calling and your purpose. And he has the power over death. So that when that final enemy gets you, it has already lost. But you think about the world in which we live. And there are so many people that are living with so much. But they have nothing because they do not have Christ Those of you who know me well know that I'm a huge baseball fan. And one of my favorite players as a kid growing up, Johnny Bench. Watching the baseball bunch on Saturday mornings. Getting excited. Terrific ball player. Considered one of the the greatest players and probably the best catcher that's ever played the game of baseball. And there was a documentary about his life that was just produced and they had it on TV last week. I didn't watch it, but I watched little segments of it. And is a -- I think he's 71 or 72 years old, at this point in his life, he's experienced and he he's expressing about all the things growing up in Oklahoma, not having anything and being able to just enjoy all the things that life has to give him, four marriages and four divorces and all the hardships of a broken body. They didn't have Christ. as brilliant and as noteworthy as the life he has lived. Unless he comes to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and understand who he is, a million years from now he will be suffering because he rejected the one true God. There are people that Amy was talking about watching a documentary recently about people whose life is consumed with just Buying more and buying things that are just extravagant, things that would just blow our minds to even consider being in existence, much less actually paying money for. And the addiction that that is to just get more and more and more, but you have nothing. Jesus didn't say in vain, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake. We'll find it, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For nothing. Profits nothing. Now does simply knowing who Jesus Christ is make the difference. <laughs> no. The devil knows full well who Jesus is. There's a host of demons who have fallen from God's glory. They know who Jesus is. They even said so when Jesus was casting him out of a possessed man, and they knew what was head, they were headed for. They knew, but knowing Jesus, knowing Him as your personal Lord, His title, rightfully so, makes a difference. Trust today that you know the difference. It's not just a matter of seeing the horizon separating Jesus Christ, the man, from all the other men because he's God. But the horizon that you know the difference between I know about Jesus, I believe the Bible is right about who Jesus is, but knowing Jesus as your Lord. And that's not going to happen until you have been brought to a point of conviction of your sin and you repent. And you place your faith and your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ that he performed on your behalf on the cross. As, as we're talking in reminding us about what our CGG lesson was about the law, the law wasn't given to us so that we could impress ourselves when we keep it. The law was given to us to show us that we can't. But Jesus Christ fulfilled it, and he took upon himself our sins so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you know that Lord? Is he Lord of your life today?